The views and opinions expressed by guests on Connected do not necessarily reflect those of Side Street Studio Arts. Episodes may contain adult language. another episode of Connected. I'm Alex Sharp with Side Street Studio Arts and I'm here with Joshua Dixon um, to talk about his art and his show at Side Street called Connective Tissue. Thank you for joining us today Joshua. No problem. Thank you so much Alex for inviting me here and being a part of just like you guys community. Awesome. Yeah. To uh, to start, I just um, just wanted a, a little background. I wanted to ask um, what drew you to photography and art in, in kind of the first place? What drew me to photography and art in the first place was um, when I was eight years old, I was attacked by two pit bulls and lost 80 percent of my face, lost both ears and uh, most, like most of my muscles and veins, even including my nose. And being in a, um, coming back from that experience, being in a coma for a month and waking up and not remembering exactly what happened yet. So I had a, I had amnesia, short-term amnesia for a while until it all came back to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, in the hospital, they used art therapy to help me recover, to help kind of get myself back to being acclimated to this new version of me because the old me is gone but also just like being mentally prepared for the world and like for everything that stood that was like, that was next, like the road of surgeries. And um, at that time, I didn't believe that they were like, Oh, you're going to definitely have probably more than 20 surgeries by the end of this. And uh, didn't believe them. Thought that that was a huge number, but now I'm at 61 and I'm just like, okay, I see where you're coming from, but really just them using art therapy to prepare me and to help me, heal from what I went through as a young kid, like not understanding, um, just not like not being aggressed, like the severity of the issues at hand. Mm-hmm. But, um, my, I think it was somebody at the hospital or my mom got me a camera. And after I remembered, it was about a week after waking up, um, I kind of remembered like, what happened and that was the first time I was able to look in the mirror and like see myself in the mirror of what, what my current state was. I wasn't able to talk. I wasn't able to walk. I wasn't able to read or write again. Like I had to learn also my left eye is like kind of decommissioned at that point. I still have it, but the vision is like not usable type of thing. And being adjusted to that, like I was really tired, really fatigued, but uh, it got me this, they allowed me to look in the mirror and getting used to that image was really hard. But it was their idea to let me have a camera and to let me just photograph the whole experience, to let me capture the whole experience in a way of even back then thinking about it, like me trying to be a part of something that I didn't that I didn't always feel a part of. I felt like I was the product of it. But using taking photos of that documenting the that whole, I mean, couple of years were like um, me just being a part of everything that was going on. And so as I got older, um, I still did, I still was taking like photos, but I didn't consider myself a photographer. 
I would say 14, 15 years old. I was in a, a art class in my high school that worked on Photoshop. And I'm really tech savvy. I'm definitely a nerd for computers. I'm definitely the nerdy kind of person. Mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed that experience of just creating, of creating these paintings from photos. And later, about two years later, realizing that I can use photography to create conversations that I felt like we weren't having enough of using them as like a bridge for two different, totally different people to be able to meet in the middle and like have conversations. And that's like pretty much where it took off since then. Yeah, I I did love going through your book of um, when you were younger, taking pictures at the hospital, because I think kind of what you said, like being able to take pictures of your experience, you things weren't just like happening to you. You were more part of it uh, and you were able to kind of be more part of a very uncontrollable experience when you were so young. Um, so that's awesome to to still have all those photos from from that really hard time. Yeah, um, I hated a lot of those photos after I would say like probably two years down the road. So probably at like surgery thirty at that point, mm-hmm. I started to really uh, I would tear up the photos. So my mom had to like take away all of the archives for me. Everything that had like archival, uh, all of the physical photographs that didn't have duplicates to them. Even the the photo of me days before the accident that's up on the wall at Side Street. Mm-hmm. I ripped so many different copies of that photo because I was so angry that I never I never was gonna get back to. It. I think it was sitting in like two years later. It was finally sitting in that I wasn't gonna give my life back, mm-hmm. and I wasn't kind of like able to be a kid I was kind of forced to grow up like very very fast because of that experience mm-hmm. um so there was a lot of resentment even though I was like still like this butterfly kid like if there was moments where I was just like this is hard like this is just really hard mm-hmm. uh, I just wasn't trusted to art to any of the archive well, even that book was like kept secret for like in like a hidden place for I think 10 years mm-hmm. 10 years I knew it existed I knew it was still around but um, just was too much for me, but I still kept taking photos, um, digital photos. I got a camera with an SD card and I would take photos that way, but, um, I'm glad that I didn't destroy that book. And I'm glad that a lot of those photos are still, uh, still exist to show evidence of what was 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, another question I wanted to ask was most of your work is portraiture. So what's significant about portraits to you? Portraits are in a way where I can kind of deconstruct myself and from the lens. I get to kind of be a surgeon of myself mm-hmm. or um, of, so like a, um, deconstruct all of the, I can't think of the exact words for it, but the, the words that I've been called over the years for my condition about being disabled, about being this Black guy from Chicago, about um, being someone with all of these scars, being called Scarface. When the whole Ebola thing broke, like, happened, people would thought I was like this Ebola kid. Thing. And taking a lot of these like hateful and painful moments, bringing them to where my camera is and Cap- like capitalizing these experiences in a new light 
um, being able to deconstruct myself in front of the camera, being able to add value and take value away from certain certain terms or certain issues that I'm dealing with in that current moment as I'm taking those portraits. Mm-hmm. Even though those portraits are all me, and it was weird to see so many me's on the wall, but they're all a different time and a different place in my life and in my journey. And even though that they're so personalized to my experience, the, the way I created them, the way I talk about them, the way I talk about the mental health journeys and struggles and body insecurities or all the name callings or being kicked out, like I've been kicked out of restaurants for the way that I've looked like. There's just been so much that I've been through just for having this face or even just like having the conditions that I've had, like having balloons or like there's so many different surgeries that I went through where I had to have these devices like hanging out of me and being treated as, as like kind of a, a outsider of society for so long. The camera in a way has helped me kind of recontextualize myself in a new way in society outside of like, well, with me being disabled, with me being an African-American male from Chicago, um, with me going through all that I've been through, with suicide, with two suicide attempts, with being in a domestic violence relationship, with having 61 surgeries, with having skin flaws, with having body dysphoria, with like all of these different issues and having pre-existing medical conditions that makes me question my mortality sometimes and bringing all of that together to just construct and deconstruct myself and it's kind of like dance with light and darkness in the lens yeah um do you when like using like your self-portraits um do you find that you're because you are like a professional artist you do you know do headshots for people and stuff when it comes to your work and photographing yourself are you more highly critical or is this like you said kind of more of a a way to kind of accept yourself in more of like a therapeutic kind of thing I would say a mixture of both I'm really critical about my craft I'm very technical um like I like things to be really like I'm really a perfectionist about it and I think I'm really a perfectionist when it comes to photography because I can't perfect my body. I can't perfect who I am. So that's the only thing that I can perfect is my craft. Mm-hmm. And uh, taking photos of me in front of the lens, I give myself the same respect that I give, uh, like if I was taking your headshots or your portraits. Mm-hmm. Everyone is a human. Not everybody's going to look at this photo and think that they're beautiful. You might look at this photo. I'm, you know, I might take this photo and you love this photo right now. But five years from now, you're a totally different person than you were five years before. You might hate that. You might now hate that photo. That photo is now uh, like this capsule of your history. And I give everyone that same respect, including myself. Like, I don't like, um, I've been with other photographers who kind of treat people as if they're just subjects in front of the lens. Um, but I always tell myself that even when I'm photographing people, if I can't get in front of the lens, then obviously I don't have the right the, the right conversations with myself to get myself willfully in front of this lens being vulnerable. Everyone that gets in front of a camera, they're pretty vulnerable. You're taking a vulnerable moment of them, whether they're posed or whether they're not posed. So I always like to just treat that person as if they're myself and treat them as a human being and that, you know, um, if this isn't a great look for you, if this isn't a great position, like let's Let's have this beautiful conversation where it can really be 
your photograph as much as it's mine. And so when I'm in front of the camera, I treat myself as two different people almost, subject and photographer, and I make sure that those conversations are healthy. Yeah, that's that's really, really well said because it just like elevates just, I think it's simple because we take a lot, a lot of us take photos every day, especially cameras being so readily available in our phones and stuff. But to keep it in mind that, you know, this, you said like this conversation of, you know, photographer and subject um, just like elevates photography that in a way that I think we don't think of nowadays because it is such common in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, where am I? Um, okay. So one of my favorite things about connective tissues is the narrative that it tells. Um, it was a great use of, of the space as you kind of start on one side of the gallery and move um, along it and, and see your journey through um, the multiple surgeries that you have, kind of self-acceptance and all of that. So um, can you speak a little about about what it was like telling telling the story through photography? It's been it, it's been scary uh, because it's really these vulnerable tales and these vulnerable stories and even just like having myself in a hospital gown, like all of these things that I've tried to like hide, I'm hype, like I'm hyper-visualizing and sharing them and maybe, and even recreating these moments um, because I'm accepting the fact that those staples that I have in my face that you saw in the x-ray machine, those, that chain that I have that's in my that's permanently in my face for the rest of my life helps me smile like all of these different things whether I like them or not like my photographs that I made after my suicide attempts they'll photo that artwork that I made of the two kind of like painterly portraits that like me being kind of like I guess you split myself in half and then they both look identical that photo which is called a wish or even the photo that I have that's across the wall from it where there's like scratch marks on the wall. Like I'm alive because of those things. I'm alive because of those experiences through that pain, through that journey, through all of those tears. Being able to talk about it has helped me kind of exist longer here in this world, but also be able to feel like I'm not alone, even though my experience sets me out for so many different people. So being able, so when someone walks into that room or even when I walk into my photos, I might not relate to every photo at that given moment, but I do know that there's one in that collection where someone might resonate with. There's one in that moment where I might like today, but I might not, you know, have the same emotions for tomorrow. And uh, being able just to be in that room and to see all this conversation, especially see how Chris laid out all of those portraits because I really trusted him with the vision. Mm -hmm. uh, as my work as a photographer, I make the work, I'm accountable for everything that I make. And when it comes to laying it out, I had like a little bit of an idea, but I was like, you know what? I did my part and I, and I want to see Side Street like just go crazy with it. And you guys did a beautiful job. And um, it's it was beautiful to see certain people like certain ones over the next and it reminded them of something and then they want to talk about that. So now we can talk about um, skin diseases or skin infections, or we can talk about mental health, or we can talk about sexual assault or sexual abuse, or talk about suicide, or talking about having so many surgeries 
And then after that experience is over, you don't want no one to associate you with that. Like, I've heard that so many times and I've even done it myself where like once I'm done healing from any sort of medical procedure, I like so far remove myself from that from that image of myself because I just I don't see that self in good light. Now I am. And and I'm bringing that to photography, adding this beautiful lens onto it, taking something that seems so gruesome, that seems so mechanical, that seems so invasive and realizing that like that invasive stuff in our life is probably what keeps us alive. Yeah, I love that that it's it's a very unique experience for you, but you know, you telling your story, there's something in it for everybody that they can all take away again and they can all like learn from, you know, your journey. Um one of the things that I really liked about kind of the start of it to the end of it is that the last picture on, you know, when you walked around the gallery was you with your dog. Um, so it, that was nice that it kind of showed that you're still not done healing, that there's still, there, you're still going forward in, in learning to accept and heal. And like how you, you've kind of mentioned, everybody's kind of a new version of themselves every, you know, couple of years and even a couple of weeks and just kind of, kind of accept and, and move forward. So I loved, I loved that, how it kind of almost came like a little full circle. Oh, like. Even just like having Chloe up on that wall just means so much to me because I was attacked by two dogs 15 years ago. Our two dogs, our two pit bulls, and lost everything. Nearly lost my life. And it all happened in two minutes. And it wasn't until my 2021, my last suicide attempt, which was in 2020, um, December 2020, and then my recovery is 2021. I'm also a senior in college. I'm about to graduate. And I was like, you know what, Josh? You spent your whole life dedicating your happiness to other people and, like, living a certain way that kind of, like, you didn't base your happiness unless someone, unless you were making someone else happy. So I was like, I think I'm in a good enough position to finally take a leap of faith and do something for just my own happiness, regardless of what somebody else thinks. And I was like, I think I had just get left with this abusive relationship. I'm like, you know what? I think I'm ready for a hiking companion. I think I'm ready for to to use the data that I found uh, for my senior thesis. I did my senior thesis kind of ha- around pit bull maulings and about dog attacks. So I had a lot, a lot of, I had a lot of data of what dogs are statistically known to bite people and the severity of those bites. So, like, the dogs that have, like, the least amount of reported cases. Australian Shepherds were, like, all the way at the bottom of that list. And great hiking dog. And I saw this this little pup online on a sketchy website. Thought she wasn't real. We drove six hours to this Amish village. No, 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 just no, just gravel roads. Bare feet people just in the woods. Weird, creepy thing. I got, I got this pup and um, Chloe ended up being just this best friend for me. I was really worried that she was going to flare up my PTSD. I was like, I spent so many years healing and being re-exposed to healthy dogs and also not healthy dogs. So I know the difference. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think I'm comfortable enough with having this pup that can only be about knee high. I'm scared of big dogs. So mm-hmm. As long as she's like mid range to small, I should be great. And even to this day, she's never, like, triggered any of my PTSD at all. She's been a great best friend, a great supporter. 
great source of healing for me through all of this experience and knowing that I always knew that all dogs weren't bad, but it took me a while to learn that all dogs weren't bad. So having her and she was there for my graduation, my graduating college. So it's like I went through all of like all of these years of stuff, 13 and a half years. At that point, it's I think 13 and a half years because I've had Chloe for almost two years now. Uh, and I'm just like, man, like I'm like I'm here. Like all of that stuff, all of those times where I could have died, and um, those two suicide attempts where there were surgeries where I almost didn't make it off the operating table, all of those sacrifices that I've made, going to college, which is a big leap, even the stuff that I went through in college with like racism and police brutality and like all of this stuff. It's like now I'm here, like I'm here at the top of this hill. Mm-hmm. I'm here with this puppy that no one would have thought I would ever had a puppy. I never would have thought this, but I love this. I love this cute little fluffy thing I'm watching this fluffy thing grow and to sleep by me all the time and she has nightmares she has PTSD too mm-hmm. her I guess they used to hit her on the head she had like a really large lump when we got her oh. and uh she was like really terrified of just big burly men mm-hmm. like big burly men she just hated it but uh every now and then she still has like puppy nightmares and it's funny for the fact that she wakes me up when I have nightmares. I wake her up when she has nightmares. That's our relationship yeah. at night. And so having her on that wall, it's just like a big kind of just like moment for me. Um, and I'm always healing. I think everyone's uh, everyone's healing. And one thing that my counselor told me, my therapist told me last week, she said everyone's broken. Whoever doesn't consider themselves not being broken in any, in any sort of shape or fashion, they're not being honest. She's like, everyone's broken. And then I had a first sense with like, everyone's healing. Everyone's healing from something. There's something that we're grabbing out of the closet, some skeleton we're grabbing out of the closet, and now we're talking to it and revisiting it. And a lot of those photos on the walls were used to be skeletons on the wall and like skeletons in my closet. And now to have them out and have them be healthy and to treat that inner child with, um, with care and kindness and to have my own little pup that's kind of like a kid it's like a really just huge thing of me just for healing and hope and longevity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, your uh, photography really does reflect that, um, that vulnerability. And you know, like you said, skeletons in the closet that a lot of people would want to keep in the closet. Um, but I think that's what makes your photography so great. And it is very vulnerable and also beautiful as well. Um, another question I wanted to ask was, um, so a lot of the photos are self-portraits, um, but some of them are photographs of medical equipment that you've used, prosthetics that you've had. Um, so what was kind of the thought process of wanting to put those in the show and also kind of the process of, um, photographing them because like I, you do a lot of portraits and now here's these medical um devices which you can kind of frame in any kind of way to make them scary things or not so scary you know things so what was your kind of process with that it was because at a certain point I realized that I was like man I spent so many times like taking portraits of the experience but I think there's something that I'm avoiding is really how I'm here, how I'm still existing, how doctors have 
put their like hands on the line and their like like phys- like their education on the line to like make me who I am today as an adult. And so uh, I was like, you know what? I kind of want to start photographing these things that I'm uncomfortable to talk about. I'm not uncomfortable now, but like at that moment, uncomfortable to talk about. I want to talk about. I want to let people know about what it's like for me when they don't see me. What it's like, like kind of letting viewers into my home life, which is something that I don't always share. And I think there's always been kind of this door in between separating private life. Like my private, private life is really my medical life. And then having the public life, which is everything else, like everything else is public life. But now it's like I'm opening this door where I get to show people these these nasal trumpets that I use um, at night to help me breathe and to help my airway stay open so I don't like asphyxiate on myself, which I've experienced asphyxiation and it's not great. Or being able to talk about this experience of having a fractured nose, like my nose, like right now is kind of this weird fractured state and it feels like I have a broken nose until I can get that fixed. But those nasal trumpets help keep everything straight for like a temporary amount of time. It's like 12, 13 hour window. I get good breathing. Then after that, it just goes back to crap. And then it's time, about time to put them back in. My prosthetic ears are always on in public. They would, I would never show up in public without my prosthetic ears on. Unless I guess I lost one, but I've never... Like I've never went in public without my ears. And so having the photographs of my my anaplastologist making these current set of ears, having the photographs of that experience, these are all tools and devices that construct who I am. This very mechanical process, this very invasive kind of intimidating kind of scary devices, even seeing the post-ox machine, like the heart monitor, uh, really scary things that like people go to the hospital being scared about. Then there's people like me that's like, I go there and I'm thankful to be there because I know that that's going to help. Like this care, though that it hurts, these staples, these stitches, these permanent, I got like a couple of hundred stitches like permanently in my face under my skin that doesn't bother me. But like these things, though they seem so, so terrifying, they will keep me here. It would keep me alive. They were they're here for me to be in this Zoom. I would, if I didn't have some of these things, I probably wouldn't be in a Zoom call. I wouldn't be in that show. So there are so many different things that I look that I that I had to think about and realize that like I wouldn't have these photographs if it wasn't for this medical life. This thing that's been 15 years of my life, 61 surgeries, losing so much blood, almost dying, losing like family members, I guess, not inviting me to things because they thought that that I was like, well, might creep out people, all of these different changes. Like, I wish I could had another book, but every surgery, all the way up until like, I would say like 55, I had a total different face. Like every time I, I would get used to it, I would get used to one face. Three weeks later, I'm, I'm having another surgery total different face and that I think can really negatively affect the person mentally like just waking up and you don't even know who you are in the mirror like each and every time but understanding that it's a part of the process you have to trust the process whether you like it or not you have to trust the process and have faith in the end result the end result is 
um, being my kind of normal isn't society's normalcy. Uh, I had to realize that like I'm not I would never be considered normal with society standards, even with me having a fashion brand business or me being a photographer, me being nearly six feet and like, I don't know, like being able to drive like all of these very normal things. I've still found myself to never be called normal, but realizing that like I'm normal in my own way. These things, these photos, these devices, these instruments, they help me be my kind of normal. They're all normal to me. They don't freak me out. I like them. I think they're cool. And I'm going to photograph them like they're a subject, like they're me, like they're a human because they help keep this human being here. So I have this emotional attachment to them, but also allowing people to know that like everyone, everyone's weird. Everyone's strange in their own way. Everyone's not normal and society standards in their own way. We make ourselves be normal for people, but then we take away who we really are. And so by me having this very vulnerable show that's showing you my private life and my public life, kind of something that kind of brings this sense, this sense of, oh, that's normal for Josh. Then, and I guess in that way, then maybe my own conditions, my own insecurities, my own flaws, my own stretch marks, my own this or that or the third, they're my point of normal. These things make me normal. They keep me here, keep me existing. I might not like them. They're a part of my experience. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to touch on like the vulnerability because um, I think one of the things that when I saw your show that like, that may impacted me, but just like, I was like, wow, you know, he's got those photos up you know, on the wall was the kind of post-op, pre, you know, pre-op, post-op photos of surgery. Because um, like you said, you you had to get used to a different face and then another face. And, and you have all these kind of photographs as these records of these different stages. Um, so was that hard to show that to people, especially those vulnerable moments right before surgery? Or was it something you were kind of not like not excited to that's the wrong word but like you wanted to share with the world or was it a little bit of a struggle there was a struggle because when I was when I've made I would say a nice like good 60 percent of that work I was trying to get to the wrong people Mm -hmm. so there was no acceptance behind it there was no respect behind it I wasn't having I went to art school for four years but there wasn't the proper critiques on it. And so there was a point where I felt like what I was making wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. That like my value in that work wasn't being perceived as like valuable. And it took me to realize that like I had to find people who cared about what I cared about and that there's realizing like there's 8 billion people in this world. If, if 20 people in this class or 500 people in this university. I went to Maine College of Art for two years. That's where I had my rough times with my art. But these 500 people don't like my work. Well, then I'm going to change. I need to change up the space and, you know, bring it to a place that might actually admire and appreciate it because I care a lot enough about it. I show that I care about all of this and I'm caring enough to at least put this vulnerability out there and to be accountable for it. There's so many artists that make vulnerable work but they take away their own accountability and they don't want to talk about the vulnerability 
Mm-hmm. And so as a vulnerable artist myself, I know that I'm a vulnerable artist. If I put it up there on the wall, I'm ready to talk about it. If I'm not going to put it up there, if I'm not willing to talk about it to a random stranger that doesn't know anything about being like having an IV in their skin, I'm not going to put that photograph up because that's not respecting you and your curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I'm a curious person. I invite curiosity. Uh, and people who have always have shown, I guess, like fear towards people who look like me or people like me who have some sort of disabilities or physical appearances or elements. It's really just a lack of education. And so I love when people are curious. I love when people ask. And so if I'm going to put something up, I'm going to present myself a certain way. I'm ready to talk about it. I'm ready to have the conversations that might be hard and might make me sweat. But I know that at the end of it, me and you learn something new. Mm-hmm. I might have learned something new about myself. I might learn something new about you. I love learning about people. And that person has learned about me, but something way bigger than me. Um, about, about people in general. I see that show and see all of those photographs. There's something that starts with me, but they don't end with me. They're not about me at the end. They're about this whole bigger umbrella about perception about this invasive tenderness care that kind of connects the skin together and makes it to what you see. So now we're having these all of these issues, these reflections of ourselves and seeing like, oh, like maybe I need to sit on this for a second. I need to think about this for a second. Mm-hmm. So I had to just find the right audience. Some of the people, some galleries don't like my work, but Side Street did. And Side Street had a great review to it. So that's a great example of that. Outfit. Like finding the audience will help me keep creating. Mm-hmm. Like finding people who cared about what I was creating, but cared about that bigger version that I talked about. Like not even just that it's me. It's me starting this because no one's talking about it. So you have to start somewhere. But being able to create this bridge where me and you both can walk on or me and a whole lot of other people can walk on so that they can go to a new destination. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about being able to um, show these vulnerable moments in a place that respects me the way I respect them by giving them this vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, I also love that that it is vulnerable work and it is documenting different stages of of your life, but it's it's so artfully done. It's so beautifully done. You know, you're not just thinking and documenting you know, points of your life, you're also thinking as an artist and one kind of talking about some of your past work. Um, one of the ones that I really liked was a closed battle. That was the one with um, you had just very simple, just like wrapped yourself in like white sheets. And it was like both very beautiful and like haunting at the same time, kind of. Um, so can you talk a little bit about about that series? Those battle series, I love, that was that's one of my favorites, honestly. It's one of my favorites to do because of the simplicity of it. Um, I had just transferred back to Chicago from Mean College of Art. And Mean College of Art is a predominantly very, very, um, not just like a white space, but there's, I don't know if you've ever heard this term of the room of silence. The room of silence was this term that um, colors, I mean, minority students at 
um, RISD, um, Rhode Island Institute for Art and Design. They um, basically, when they have critiques about their work, it would be a class full of 30 or 40 people or 20 people, depending on the studio size, but no one talks about the work. Mm. And when I went to Maine, that was my experience. I spent hours making a lot of those photos. I mean, hours making a lot of the work that I made in Maine. And the critique before mine would be like, live it and be alive and everyone's talking, everyone's participating. It'd be like my critiques to come and it's just me and the, me and the teacher. Mm-hmm. Classroom full of people with attendance rate at like 98%. Me and the teacher just having a conversation about the work or having a conversation about what, I guess, outside of the work type of stuff. And so there was a lot of just me making something and existing in places that didn't that didn't want me to be there. That I was just there just to like spend money to pay. And so I thought about this very sterilizing experience, this very white, like whiting out my color and just white, like taking away my personality, taking away my creativity, my art style even changed because of I was failing my classes there because my art was too prolific. I was like, and so I had to change my, like change the dynamics of how I created art. And when I left there and I came back here, I started at the uh, School of the Art Institute. They were like open for every idea that I had. Like they were just like, make the work and let's do it. Let's talk about it. And there was still some like moments of silence. There was people who was willing to attack it, whether even though it was so far removed from like maybe their privileged background or maybe their their so like where they're from, but, like they were ready to engage with it. And so it was coming from this really dark, very sterile place where I wasn't allowed to be myself. I wasn't allowed to be, to represent my identity. And then coming to a place of this new, so it was like this pure and darkness, like this this play with pure light and uh, positive mental health, but this really violent fight of darkness with depression thoughts with taking away all of my color, taking away like my bright colors, taking away my blood and that I used or even my skin tones and making this kind of like paint painterly battle between light and dark, figuratively and physically. Uh, so that that's kind of like the mindset that I had when I was making that body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love there's one that you're like, you're kind of, a sheets around you but then you also have one wrapped around your head and you're wearing all white so you almost like blend into the background you can't even see that it's you you can't see your face and like you said you can't see your identity at all um so I think that one just represents really well what you were going through you know during that time Thank you. Uh, and I even um that that particular photo was inspired because I uh, I used to have his best friend in me. He's really cool. But uh, he started taking a lot of drugs up there. I didn't take any drugs while I was up there. But he like had like this outlash and he tied me up. Like I got physically tied up from head to toe. No job, no shit on that. Like, like physically tied up head to toe in front of all of his roommates. Everyone thought it was funny. Everyone was laughing. Literally getting carried around like like a like a like a like a bag of luggage around this this kid's dorm room. So I ended up 
figuring out, getting myself out of that situation, cutting myself out, and like scaring it because they were also like, they were people who were kind of, they were kind of scared of people of color. Mm-hmm. So I got like, had this like big angry outlash. Everyone left me alone, gave me my distance because they were trying to tie me back up again. And I, I left and went to the studio and actually went to go start making photos. Not the photos that you saw on the wall, but like I just had to go like clear my mind. Yeah. And when I made the close battle in that photo of me with the sheet wrapped around my head, it was just me kind of revisiting me being tied up. But also I almost got expelled for that, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Yeah. Um, I decided that first... I was coming back to Chicago. I had a like I had a I was here for 12 hours. I'm flying from Maine to come here because my medical insurance got cut off. Someone reported me and like they cut off all of my stuff. So I couldn't get medicine. I couldn't get my eye patch. I could get the care that I needed while I was up there in Maine. So my mom bought a thousand dollar ticket so I could fly here for 12 hours, get medically evaluated so they could give me back my insurance mm-hmm. and fly back 12 hours later. Um and that was happening, I think, the day after I got tied up. I was supposed to fly back here. And I ended up still doing that. But uh, I was like, you know what? I got too much going on. It's midterms. That person was a good person. And I have enough respect for them to not report this situation. I am traumatized. I don't know how to feel about this. I'm broken about being tied up and carried around like a piece of luggage. But I was like, I don't have the time to deal with this right now. So I'm going to leave it a secret. Mm-hmm. While I was gone for 12 hours, apparently he went around to school like bragging about it. People thought it was fucked up, that it wasn't cool. So then the story got changed to where he did that out of self-defense. So while I was flying back to Chicago, like at four o'clock in the morning, I get an email from the dean saying that you're being prosecuted for expulsion. We're going to expel you for assaulting a student. And the only thing that saved my 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 career and my life because they were going to press they were going to press charges against me was that the kid that tied me up didn't care that I had a camera in my hand because I was there to take photos of them for my project and I had a camera in my hand the whole time while I was being physically tied up so I was taking photos of the whole entire experience from start to finish, even while I was being carried around like by luggage, I had my camera like strapped to my chest and like taking photos of everything. The only thing that saved my whole academic career was by having photos. And it was traumatizing for me to even share those photos with the dean, but they were ready to expel me. And so when I made the close battle, that was a huge inspiration as well as like that whole fight that happened as a freshman, like literally my first year here, this is spring semester, about March. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that series was a very beautiful series, born out of a very horrific event. And you are you're a pretty big person because <laughs> that that to just kind of like wanting to let it go, that's insane. Um, another series I admired which was also while you were attending college was the numbered and bear and bard um series um when you attended Maine college of art uh you took mugshots of students of color and had them kind of 
relay their stories of being racially profiled on campus by police. And you also had stories of being racially profiled. Um, so how did being a minority in a very white school and also being looking different than even the other minorities right. on campus um, affect your art during during those college years? It made me, it, it, when I realized that how much people devalued, not just me for being black. So when I got to Maine, I immediately stood out from everyone that was that was like moving in that day. There's a lot of hipsters, a lot of like like Eastern, like Northwestern kind of like attire is the way people are dressing. I come hoodies and joggers, which isn't really associated with anything besides like maybe athlete culture or maybe streetwear, but I wasn't wearing anything streetwear. So at that point, I guess you would consider me a track player or something like that. Like I kind of look also used to beach and track, so that kind of just fit that profile. But when people found out that I was from Chicago, there was this whole different attitude towards me. Like, people didn't want to be my friends. They're like, oh, he's from Chicago. He got those scars from shooting people. Or, like, or people ask me, I remember someone sat at the lunch table with me while I was trying to just, like, mind my own, just, like, have my own peace. Someone came and, like, sat down and was like, hey, have you ever seen someone get murdered? Cause you're from Chicago and, or have you ever murdered anybody that, and that's how you got those scars. So it was just like this really dehuman, dehumanizing experience of even just being in that school alone, alongside being in that city. There are some really nice people in Maine. I love the nature there. If I ever go back to Maine, I probably would not visit the school at all. Care less about that. But I did love the nature. And my first day in Maine, uh, I'm one of the people who were in that series. His name is Brandon Rivera. We live on the same floor together. We were the only people of color on the floor. He's Hispanic, Black. He's from New York City. He's from the Bronx. I'm from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he saw me, he was like, yo, you're the only person of color I've seen the whole day. He was like, I don't care if you're a bad person, but we need to be friends. We need to be friends. We need the brotherhood. And we did that. I mean, like, we're still great friends to this day. We ended up being, like, really great friends. But we dealt with so much racism being there, especially when we hung out together, because he dressed like he was from New York. I wore hoodies and joggers. So we both stood out heavily every time we went somewhere together. We, When I got kicked out of a restaurant, I was with him when I got kicked out. And... Uh, being in that school and creating the artwork and knowing that I was already being dehumanized for not only for being Black, but being from Chicago, also having this face, being attacked by dogs, and having people crack so many jokes about that, like grown people I thought would have a sense of me, like I guess have respect, didn't really have it. But I realized it's like, okay, I'm away from family, so there's no one to defend me. If I'm paying $26,000 in student loan debt, like in student loans to be here, I need to stand up. I need to go from like being passive to being like aggressive with my rights and with knowing that not only I deserve to be here, but my art, my work deserves attention that what I'm going through, that this unfairness needs to be addressed because I care, like, I care too much about people. And so when stuff happens to me, I know it happens to someone else. Mm-hmm. 
the first thing I think about. Something happened to me, like when I got spit on in front of the school. One, that was actually the day I made those photos. When I started that series, is the day I got spit in front of the school by like some old sixty-year-old white dude wearing a Hawaiian shirt in front of a taco shop. Yeah. And he just like just gave me this wet Louis straight to my face, laughed at me, and just kept walking. That same day, I went downstairs and took took my self portrait of me for that series and that was creating that body of work and being befriending other minority students in the school which out of 500 kids there were only like 13 of us mm-hmm. like we literally went by numbers we were like yo it's like only 13 of us like you would go to every class you had in a week probably maybe just you and maybe one other person in that class and anything about blackness came up everyone would look at you. Teacher would look at you. They would expect you to be like the spoke person for like mm-hmm. black experience. <laughs> I'm just a <laughs> person with the skin. I, I can't speak on like everything. I can't speak on what Louisiana people go through. I can't, I can only speak on what I go through. I can't even speak on what Chicagoans go through. Mm-hmm. I experienced Chicago on a totally different experience than Chicagoans. But creating that body, well, going through the hell that I went through and hell that I knew others that went through. I was like, if they don't have the power to have a voice, I want to respect them in a way and make sure that we can reclaim that kind of power and showcase, showcase forcefully that this isn't right, that this isn't fair, and that we deserve to be here just like the next person. But photograph it in an artistic manner because I'm in a, I'm in art school, so it's like I need to give that. I need to show my artistic background as also being an advocate for my rights as being a black student in the city, a black student in the school, but also for other peers who are also black or brown, trying to just be alive. You know, trying to just be safe, trying to go outside, like go jogging. Like I used to jog. And one night I went jogging with my backpack on just for the fact that I like to be weighted down when I'm running. Cause I know that I'm only, uh, I'm only like 140. Mm-hmm. I, I like, uh, I get a little stronger by having some sort of weighted padded on me and I get a little stronger like that. So I was jogging with a weighted backpack on me and I got pulled over for that. They didn't believe that I was from here. I mean, that I went to the school. They thought my ID was fake. They said my ID looked like it was Photoshopped my, my school ID and um, then when they saw my state ID, it says I was from Chicago. They were like, what is a Chicago person like you doing here in Portland, Maine? Are you taking advantage of our, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but it's like, are you taking advantage of our good citizens here? Like, what brings a person like you here 900 miles away from your home? Mm-hmm. And uh, they threat they threw out my backpack, threw everything on the ground, laptops on the ground. Luckily, it didn't break. Just poured everything out. Well, they were like, well, at least you're not a criminal, but uh, if your ID doesn't get you into the building, then we're going to arrest you for trespassing. And sometimes this particular door to the dorm, the, the key card doesn't always work. So mm-hmm. I'm like, fucking sweating bullets. Mm-hmm. And I tap it and it turns green. And I like, I was so happy to just go in there and just get away from them. Because I was like, if it turns red, they're just going to arrest me. They're not even going to let me try again. They're just going to arrest me. Mm-hmm. and uh, 
the next day, the next two or three days, I spent time with Brandon. I spent time with other students. And I uh, spent time with the Black Student Union, which was like really in a small baby form at that time. And I was like, yo, we need to create a project. I don't know if you guys have the mental capacity to do it. I don't know if you guys want to do it, but I want to do this. And I want to create it in a weird way where it's not just it's not just portraits. I'm going to use our student ID numbers because we feel like criminals in this system. In this system of the school. So we're going to use I'm going to use our student ID numbers. And I'm going to book us like we're actual criminals. I'm going to use the color of ink on a blue pen. I have cousins who have been in correction system. I asked, can I get photos of just documents? A lot of their documents had blue ink pen on it. Mm-hmm. So I made our photos blue inked. And I created that whole dual tone effect of them capturing us, taking away our color, replacing it with their penmanship as our reports of misconduct behavior. Mm-hmm. That's how that, that body was born. Yeah, yeah that, I didn't. You know, I just thought it was interesting, but to hear like why you used the blue and like I the numbers, I didn't click that it was like your student numbers. So that that was just it's like horrific, but also like this like smart, <laughs> like in a way that like to show like what you guys are going through on this campus where you're students and you're paying yeah. the tuition that everybody else says, but your experience are were totally different totally different yeah with along with that um there you did a live performance as well um yeah. with that one uh where you're being taken in for a mugshot it's just you but you get the sense that there is someone else in the room with you kind of pushing you towards the camera and stuff like that um so how did it feel to put on a live performance and was it a challenge because it was a little bit outside of your normal media that you normally do uh, it was it was hard it was it was it was really hard to do that performance but my that was also a class where a lot of the peers in there were the peers who were like heavily racist mm. I mean, you know, like there was a student in that class in that particular in that class that was in that crowd that has ripped up my my artwork a night before crit like we had a community photo fo- we had this community a file where if you didn't have storage in your dorm room for your photographs you could just leave them here you could leave them there put your name above it and then no one's gonna touch it something something told me to come back to the studio it's like one o'clock in the morning 24 hour access school mm-hmm. i was like it's like one o'clock in the morning and something just told me just go back go to the studio real quick let's 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 go see your work one last time all of my photos are ripped up all all of my photos that i made for crib were ripped up I spent the next couple of hours printing, reprinting photos for morning crit, which is like 8.30. Mm-hmm. So being in front of that crowd, I had, I felt like that school convicted me. It took away my art style. My art style was very heavily Photoshopped, heavily painterly, but that was, that was my like Van Gogh moments. I had to stop doing all of that. I had to go to a more traditional kind of film, kind of 1970s style of photograph in order to just get even a C in those classes. And so having this performance of me being booked and processed and having my photo taken and um, in front of this 
white crowd and in front of the school and having all of those documents behind me of police brutality, but our stories and our photos and having them sloppily pinned up was me having this kind of live performance of my resistance to my soul kind of feeling like it's being taken while I've been here. Mm -hmm. uh, I, um, when I made that live performance, I had already went through the experience of being almost expelled. I had already been spit on. I've, I've already almost been arrested. I had already been through a lot of the racist comments that I've gotten from students and even from faculty while being in the school. Um, my friend, Brandon, he almost got expelled for being accused of rape. And crazy thing was that I was with them that night and like all of that happened. And if it wasn't for me um, being friends with the person that was accusing him, I wouldn't have got the recording of her saying that she made it all up. I was there, like I was in the next room and, and I like recorded, like I had a recording, like I recorded on my phone and she's like in the next room, like talking about, hey, I just made it up, you know, they're just going to kick him out and I don't like to see him no more. He broke up with me. So, um, we, you know, I'm just going to go along with it. Uh, it's, it's okay. You know, they're not going to think about him and people don't like him anyway. So it's cool. He's just going to go back to New York from where he's from and it's going to be fine. That audio kept him here. Like he almost took his own life because of he he wasn't allowed to even go to class no more. People banned like people bandwagon to not even have him in the school. So he just stayed in the dorm for like a week. Like no one knew he existed. He just like hid in his room. I would bring him food and stuff. So having that live performance, I felt like it was all of us all of us that was on that wall, I was being convicted and prosecuted and booked and filed and pushing against a, some some officer or a kid that's pushing me because I don't want to do this, but I have to do this because now I'm being written up. I'm being written down. You're taking my information. You're taking my money. You're taking my identity. You're writing down my social security number by having this, this um, school ID number is attached to my social security number. It's attached to how old I am, where I'm from, my demographics, that I'm Black, African-American male, that I've been written up already for being exposed. I mean, for being expelled. So having that experience was like this really cathartic moment of all of us going through this trauma and finally being prosecuted, being judge, jury, and prosecution all at the same time. And uh, the class, the classroom was just quiet. I mean, the some people left because they were just so uncomfortable. They left at the end of it. Mm -hmm. That performance helped um, all of the other students of color. They like they told me thank you. Like we had a party after that, and they told me thank you because they felt like they were. That was the one moment in their career in that school where they felt like they were being valued. That someone cared about them to even show them up, to show them, showcase them, and what they've been through in front of this crowd. The dean was in that room. The principal was in that room. They were in the far corner where you can see them off camera. They watched that whole entire thing every second of it. Mm -hmm. Sorry that was so long. No, no, that's, it, it's, it's like that, you know, you, you felt like you had to change your art style or, you know, you had to dull down who you were for the school because they didn't want to face, it made them uncomfortable. They didn't want to face it. 
Um, and, uh, you know, who knows if they got anything out of it um, from what you've experienced. It sounds like they didn't care to get anything out of it, but but to give to do this vulnerable performance and this vulnerable um, body of work for the other students of color, you know, to open yourself up for the criticism, but then also hearing them thank you for the work that you did. You know, it's it's very like selfish and selfless and and it makes that's what makes like it makes good art, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, my last question for you was that in your senior thesis, Inside the Gown, you stated, um, the social perception of normalcy isn't real. It's only a social contract that society inherently places on individuals to create power hierarchies. Um, how do you show this idea of, of normalcy being a social construct in your portraits? And you know, do you plan to keep this thesis throughout your work moving forward? I plan to first I plan I do plan on still using this idea throughout my work. The great example of normalcy is a false construct is um, there's a photo in the gallery of me wearing a red coat standing in front of the camera, having a necklace. It's um I, I can't remember the exact name of that portrait, but there there are diptychs. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another photo of that same exact frame, but it's me in a hospital gown with a face mask with like um, ointment on my face and the nasal trumpets in my nose. And that photo is called my hidden self. Mm -hmm. Breaking real, because I, having the accident, I didn't know that I was seen as ugly. I didn't know that I was seen as being a black kid from the South side. Like I didn't know that these identities, these negative connotating identities existed until I experienced them. And realizing that when I got those, when I got those labels placed onto me, I tried my damnness to separate myself from it. I even became preppy at one point. Mm -hmm. I became like this preppy kid wearing like button up shirts and like, like, like blue jeans every single day in public to kind of strip away my background, strip away my roots, strip away from where I'm from. Um, I have my hair cut all the time, like having this very neat Afro cut because people said like, oh, your hair is nappy. Your hair is too long. That Afro is shaped weird. Or, um, just, just like basically not feeling I had a place. And coming to this realization that like, what society deemed as normal doesn't fit majority of people who exist in this world. And we, I think anyone would be surprised how much some one person is sacrificed to just be in front of you, just to sit in front of you, just to be even like your bosses or even for you to present yourself to, I guess, a new job or, or present yourself into a new person. There's so much that you have sacrificed to even just be present in the public world that strips away what makes you special, what makes you you. Because now you're trying to fit in just so that you don't stand out amongst the crowd. And when I tried to fit in so much, fitting into these shapes that didn't fit me, that was when I was most suicidal. That was when I was most depressed. That was when I was most isolated. I created a lot of my darkest work 
which is on my website, a lot of my darkest work was created for me trying to fit in and realizing that I just couldn't fit in. Even like with my own masculinity, I think masculinity, well, okay, first, Eve was created from Adam. God used Adam's ribs to create Eve. So therefore, I believe Adam had femininity and had masculinity. His masculinity was his overarching trait, but he had a subtrait of femininity, which created Eve. And Eve also possesses masculinity. Um, so even like with me and being a man in this world, but being a black man in this world, being a like such a hard confined box where there's no little to no room for imperfection. But for me to exist in this world, I realized it was like, yo, like if I like roses, I love roses. If I want to wear a flower in my hair, that doesn't mean that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. That just means I have this self-love and self-respect for myself to show my beauty in a way that's different from the next person. So this faction of normalcy is something that was society, like that was created. It was a construct that was created, but no one's normal. Not every person looks the same. Not every black person looks the same. Not every white person or Asian person or Hispanic person looks the same. Everyone has their own unique characteristics. What's normal is that a lot of people aren't happy. I think that's what's normal in this world is that a lot of people aren't happy. That's normal. But we can change that if we start accepting who we truly are and being in environments that truly accept us. So by me saying normalcy is a is a is like a fictional construct and me defining my own version of normalcy is just me explaining that what we think is existence and how to live life is totally wrong. Each and every person has their own track. Each and every person has their has their their own ways of being happy, of being hopeful. Um one person may live 72 years and the next person might live 97 years. One person might become a millionaire before they're 22. The next person might become a millionaire at 86. Everyone has their own track, but yet we all try to fit into one track. I can't fit in that. I can't fit in that traffic. I need my own land, my own zone. And then I can come back to yours and have a conversation with that. And by having my own land, I'm able to understand who I am and be able to be able to communicate better, to be able to to have uh, more confidence, to be able to have, have more respect, to know my worth, to know my value by understanding that I'm not you and I'm not going to discredit you for not being like you. But I'm going to admire you because you're human, that we all are human. And our human experience is going to be different regardless. But understanding that my experience isn't the same as yours, but yet we have similarities that we can talk about. That's where we create these realms of conversations for differences and similarity. I mean, though that we are different, how can we find common ground? We find common ground by knowing that we are different and that we do share certain things. Yeah, and I think your work is is such a good reflection of of that because it it is you and it is unique, but because there's this vulnerability there and an open discussion that, you know, you mentioned um, that, you know, you can have through your artwork, everyone can find, you know, something in it, something for them, something to help their path that they're on right now. Um, 
which I think is, is, is just great. You know, that it's, it's, it's very unique, but also really relatable at, at the same time, which is such a weird balance that I feel like you struck perfectly with your work and particularly in this show. So, yeah, <laughs> those are all my questions for you. If you had any final thoughts, I'll let you go ahead. <laughs> um, I guess my question my question for you would be, what was your biggest takeaway from either our, our, our talk together? Like, even for, for your life, like for you, like, what is your biggest takeaway from the show or what's your biggest takeaway from our talk today? Yeah, I think from, like, especially our, our talk today, um, you know, uh, a lot of your experiences I can't relate to, but one of the ones that I can't is, is mental health issues. Um, and I think especially now in this, current climate that we're in, you know, economically, socially, and all this, um, I feel like being 25, I feel like I should be at a place in my life. Um, I graduated college, I had to move back in with mom and dad, I don't like moving in back with mom and dad, I felt defeated, I felt like, you know, I see all my other people I graduated high school with, they're all at different points in their lives. And it's hard to not compare yourself. I'm 25. This is where I should be. But, and you know, I've, I've felt like I've taken a million steps forward, but when I look around, I'm, I'm in the exact same spot that I've always been at. Um, but, you know, our talk today is just, you know, everyone's on a different path and everyone has different versions of themselves and, and what you need right now is best for you right now might not be what's best for you in a couple of years. So I'm trying to think of like future, 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 but I need to take the time to what's best for Alex in this moment. Like yes. what's best for me right now and what can help me get moving forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm 23. And uh, when I left college, um, photography didn't work out the way that I thought it would. I, I worked my ass off to have those skills that you saw on the website. And I already knew that I was at a disadvantage for being Black in a, in a very white-dominant male photography space, but also being disabled and people look at me different. There's so many clients, like I, I just kind of walked away from commercial photography just for the fact that there are so many people who, they're like, well, we love your skills. Your skills are crazy phenomenal but we don't like the face attached to the skills. Like I've actually been told that. And um, I stopped applying to photography, commercial photography companies, because I called back and this one lady, because uh, I had applied to so many and I had that portfolio that you saw online. I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, there's all of my friends who getting these great jobs, nearly having like $70,000 salaries. I'm like I'm out here struggling and, my, and I know that my skills are better than the people I graduated with. I worked hard for that, but I'm not getting it. And this uh, I called back and I basically said that same similar line to the lady that picked the phone. And she was like, you know what? I'm not supposed to tell you this, but we loved your we loved your portfolio. We thought your portfolio was better than 90% of people that we've that we've ever interviewed. But she was like, we thought that you're not a friendly face for our company, that you might make people uncomfortable. And she's like, I don't want you to take this offensively because this is just how the industry is. But she was like, if you've been applying to other jobs with the same portfolio, 
they probably all have the same mindset as us. You're a great talent. You're a great person. But the face, the face attached to the skills is not where they can make money from a lot of time. They may struggle to make money from that. That broke me down after that phone. I really broke it the fuck. I'm like, why did I go to school for four years then? Mm-hmm. And um, that time I was making fashion. And so I'm in, I'm in my, 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 my clothing brand space, admire where that focuses on mental health awareness and suicide prevention by using affirmations and a lot of the inspiration and motivation videos from meaning that I make videos but relating to all of that pain and trauma that I told you about all of these years. And even I still experience pain and trauma time to time. And all of the, what I've learned from it, being able to help others have been what my life is now. So now, like I was telling Chris, I was like, I guess commercial photography wasn't what God wanted for me. He wanted me to do some contracts here and there, which is what I do. I do some photo contracts here and there. I might do a little commercial work here and there. I was like, as being a nine to five commercial photographer, that's not what God wanted for me. That's what I wanted, but that's not what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't blessed with that opportunity. But I was like, he blessed me to be a fashion designer and to, to make clothes to help people. And so I was like, I'm still creating the same conversations with photography, but with clothing. And I'm still helping and impacting people, which gives me a purpose in life. And I feel like I'm fulfilled. Like I feel like I'm I'm my, I'm being nourished, even though I still live at home with mom with with my mom and my grandfather. But my success is different, and I define my success by being happy. Mm-hmm. So if I'm happy, I'm successful. I'm not the richest person in the world. I'm not the richest clothing brand in the world. I'm not a six figure clothing brand. I'm not a million dollar clothing brand. But my success has been happiness, and I have my own warehouse space now as a 23 year old. I still don't have enough money to move out and get my own space. But I feel like whatever is going on here, this is where I'm supposed to be in this current moment. I'm an overthinker. I have anxiety. I think about the future a lot. I get so worried about the future. But then I start neglecting who I am right now. Mm-hmm. You started like not caring about what you're what you're going through in a physical moment. And then now you're not setting yourself up to be in the best shape for the next door that might open for you in the, in the future. And in the past, the past is a great lesson learning. Whether you like it or not, past is where we can learn lessons from. But um, one thing I've learned about the past as well is that even with like failed relationships or like things that hurt the most, they have a meaning if you assign one to it. Something could happen to you like a car crash or your car getting, I'm just thinking of something that's like not so crazy, but like your car getting messed up. You can assign a meeting to that, or you could just say, I was, my car got messed up, and that's just where I leave it. And you cannot assign a meeting to it and mm-hmm. just let it be something that has happened, but you don't have to contextualize it if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Allowing yourself permission to invite into your life and take away. But yeah, like we're all on our own track. And success, I always say, for you to define success and what just really makes you happy. Because when once you're doing what makes you happier, you're in a space that you're happiest, all the other BS doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you want privacy. Yes, everyone wants privacy. I'm 23 or 25 or two years older than me. We have the same. Like, we want privacy. We're tired of mom and dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're the reason why I moved out and went to college anyway. But, you know, stuff happens. And it's a hard economy right now. It's, 
it's, it's tough in this country. And it, I think there's a lot of unfairness when it comes to moving out as well. Rent is crazy prices and stuff, but trust the, trust it, trust the process. I mean, you're, you're already doing great. You, you got your, you got your own labels for success and your own track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was all the questions I had for you, Joshua. Um, I thank you again for taking this interview with me. I feel like I could talk to you for like three hours. <laughs> like, I feel like we just keep on talking. You know, you're, you're a great speaker and a fabulous artist. So it's been a pleasure talking with you. No problem. Thank you so much. Are you artist as well or? Um, mostly a writer. Yeah. So that's uh, definitely Art. been an admirer of art for many years. Do yeah. you keep your your writing public or, or is private, it just? Mostly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I support that. I support. I mean, it's you're creating. It's, it's up to you as the, the beholder to share it or not share it. Um, yeah. so I respect people who will keep it who keep it private. <laughs> if you write something that's public, I definitely read it for you, and I'll add it to my collection over here of books. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, is there any uh, anywhere you want to kind of plug so any of our listeners can go check out your work, your fashion brand, anything like that? Um, you guys can find me at Joshua Dixon Photography on Instagram, J O S H U A D I X O N. E-H-O-T-O-P-R-A-P-Y. I don't know if I spelled that. Uh, <laughs> that was a lot. But uh, you guys can find me there. You guys can also find me at, at admirewear underscore on Instagram or at admirewear on TikTok, which is A-D-M-I-R-E-W-A-E-R or admirewear.com, which is still the same spelling. Or, you know, one thing that I like about SEO and how hard I've spent the years being tech savvy about the web is that all, all you have to do is type in my name, type in Chicago, type in Joshua Dixon in Chicago, and actually everything from me pops up. Every newsletter article that has been written about me, my fashion brand, the competition I just won in Atlanta shows up, um, my, all of my photography works, everything shows up is if you type in my name and type in Chicago, maybe, or even just type in AdmireWare. Everything from me shows up. So I appreciate that about the web, even though the web is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Go check out his stuff because it's great. Um, but thank you again for interviewing with me. Um, but that will be another episode of Connected. I'm Alex Sharp with Side Street Studio Arts. And thank you for listening. Connected is a Side Street Studio Arts production. Music by Tanner Melvin. Produced by Nick Mataragas. To find out more about Connected and all the great things Side Street Studio Arts offers, please visit sidestreetstudioarts.org.